This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Alex. And we're going to talk about uh, Appendix N. What is the the literary... <laughs> literary not... History of Dungeons and Dragons. That's right. By Jeffro Johnson. This is first published uh, by Castalia House in 2017. I, and probably an audiobook on Audible in the same year. Um, narrated by Branton or Brandon Porter. Um, you read the ebook. I read the audiobook. I have lots of complaints about the audiobook. <laughs> Do you have any complaints about the ebook? Uh, ebooks seem nice. The footnotes all worked, which is nice. You can click the footnotes. I didn't get just any footnotes, so that sucks. Um, was there an appendix? Is my question at the end. Uh, there are two appendixes. <laughs> appendix A and Appendix B, or <laughs> uh, actually they're labeled C and D. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, I was just looking through my uh, later. I don't know which edition this is. Core Rulebook to Dungeon Master's Guide uh, to see if they had an appendix in. This is from, let's see, 2000. So I, I don't know what version of the game this is. There's no appendixes at all. Appendices at all. There's just an index at the back. Um, mm-hmm. But I do have the original from, I think they say in the book, 1979. It's on page. 240, 224. Um, and I, I remember seeing this, or maybe somebody told me about it in the back. Got to be like 1980 or 81 or something like that. And I, I read it and I'm like, who the hell are these guys? <laughs> oh yeah, there's Tolkien. Um, but since then I've come to, uh, have read almost all of them. Um, not all the books. I've but read something. I've read something by most of the authors listed on this list. John um, Belair. I've read about half the things on this list. I think John Belair's. I've never read. I'm not sure oh, I've read an Andrew J. O. Offit or a, a Fletcher Pratt. But I've read. I have read Belair's, but not not the other two. You you have read Belair? Face yeah. and the Frost. I read Face and the Frost. I actually read that as a teenager. That was weird. That was I'm a high school book. Never even heard of it. And, uh, I think you did the house with the clock on its walls. Oh, yeah, that just got turned into a movie finally. Not that yeah, we're not going to talk about that. I I haven't seen it. Don't know anything about it. Um, so uh, the reason I wanted to do this book is because I like Dungeons and Dragons, but more importantly, I like reading books that are uh, literary histories because it's reading ideas, right? And um, normally. I would have had uh, Paul on here, but he is, uh, angry is not the right word. He is opposed to Castalia House in some way. <laughs> I believe, uh, oh, and the, there's an opening narrator by a guy he doesn't like, also, uh, not narrator, uh, introduction called, um, John C. Wright. And I thought the intro- introduction was okay. Um, there was, there's kind of a chip on both guys' shoulders, Jeffro Johnson and John C. Wright. But is it a, a misplaced chip, is my question. So what's your answer to that? Because Paul's not here to to uh, explain it. 
Do these guys have? Um, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> I don't Misplaced have uh, an opinion. About <laughs> well, I, I kind of like. I understand not wanting to participate in s- some books. Like um, a while ago, we had uh, Jenny Colvin from Reading Envy. She wanted to do the Margaret Atwood book called uh, Oryx and Crake, and I'm like. Margaret Atwood doesn't believe in the moon landings. Um, I, I think she's too stuck up. I don't want to read that book because I don't want to complain the whole time. Um, so I didn't. There, there I, are authors that I just want nothing to do with. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. To talk about them because I want nothing to do with them. <laughs> That's right. I mean, um, uh, but uh, it, it's it's kind of hard to understand why anybody be like that. I understand why I don't like Margaret Atwood. I see her on TV and she's smiling and they're giving her an award. And then she says something on the radio and everybody says, Oh, you're a genius, Margaret. <laughs> and she says, yes, I'm basking this glow. And she's got the most boring voice. I hate her. <laughs> I just hate her. Um, but it's kind of irrational. So I understand, um, why other people don't like other things, but, um, this is just a book of book reviews is what the way I, see it i don't i i think jeffro johnson's probably a christian or something um just based on the way he talks but it doesn't seem to stop him talking about the satanists you know uh margaret st Clair, or he's she's not a saint a couple, Wick, wiccan a couple digs in on the, the 80s satanic panic yeah well and rightly so <laughs> yeah. um so i i thought it was a good book um i do have a problem with the narrator he doesn't know how to pronounce a lot of the words that he needed to like the one that came up over and over again was mil- milieu, is the way it's supposed to be pronounced. I think milieu. Yeah, milieu. Yeah, and I can't, I don't even I can't remember how he said it, but it was completely wrong. Um, I'll even give you milieu. Yeah, I mean, this on a, an American pronunciation, but it, it's not that hard of a word. It, the thing is, is um, as a kid, you know, I had all these books or was able to access them. And so I know how to pronounce, um, Halberd. <laughs> I'm not even sure I, I know how to pronounce it, but it's, it's it, when you learn things from books, um, and then you talk about them, you're wearing words that maybe some people don't know, but that's pretty like it, as a narrator, assuming you're not coming from the genre that you're reading, I can't expect most people to know. I don't expect most people to know, but you should hire somebody who does know. It's pretty hard, I yeah. guess. As a professional narrator, you should. Know <sighs> now, I'll yeah. give you a lot of names in fantasy books. Like there is no standard pronunciation of some made-up name, right? It's right. What different? But and and some of them aren't. Like, you know, bad writers don't have pronunciation in mind, or if they do, they they have the one that's in their head, and then they don't do it phonetically. But, um, I don't think that, yeah, a lot of these are just like very obscure Tolkien-esque words. They're not even quite Lovecraftian and, you know, their obscureness. So it matters of pronunciation aside. I quite liked this book. I thought it was a good, um, overview. And, and I was thinking about what he's doing. He's not actually just talking about, about, um, Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons. He's talking about all the role playing games, right? Like he talked about Gamma World quite a bit. Gamma um, World Traveler comes up a fair bit. Uh, a lot of the, the classic OG role playing games. Yeah, 
Um, there was a, there was a, you know, I don't think he mentions Pathfinder, which is like new Dungeons and Dragons, I guess. Um, it's like 3.75. Right. That's how it's usually described. Um, but, uh, he did talk about, um, you know, you call it Cthulhu as a role-playing game, I think, but Car Wars, was that one of them? Yep. Car Wars gets mentioned. Yeah. And so a lot I of think. Yeah. Oh, GURPS. GURPS. Yeah. Tons of GURPS. <laughs> it's not GURPS. It's GURPS. G- GURPS. General yes. Universal Role Playing System, I think is what it stood for. Um, that's one I never actually played, but I did get a lot of um, looks at the books. You know, I would go to the bookstore and oh, this looks interesting. But the the main problem I had back then was everything was expensive and I was poor. So if I got a look at something, it was usually at somebody else's house, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and you, and once you get a hold of these books, that's the other thing. Um, you know, the Dungeon Master's Guide or the Player's Guide or what, whatever the, you know, Master System, Master System sounds like a, uh, it's probably a Sega, but there's the like core, the, the core rule books. The core rule books, right. And you get a hold and getting a hold of modules. I spent way more time reading the books than playing the games, right? Just way, way more time because it's hard to get a group together all at the same time and uh, have that continuously going. It's much easier just to have the book on your shelf and be able to reach over there and, and read it. And I thought his thesis is, is correct. His thesis is, uh, it sort of comes out in the last chapter, which is something like Dungeons and Dragons isn't just Tolkien. <laughs> Not at all. And it wasn't, and that's not even like a, it was never meant to be. It was never meant to be. And our perception of it as a Tolkien ripoff is to fundamentally misunderstand the game because even though we project that onto it and it's there, I think his case is really good. The way he talks about how clerics show up, the, the, the clerics are not in, you know, Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Closest we come is to yeah. like Galadriel with a with a cup of healing water or something, right? Yeah, I mean Tolkien's kind of famous for not having organized religion be a part of his universe, right? You know, for someone who's so explicitly and famously Catholic, and the whole thing's built in a very Catholic worldview, there's no like actual public religion of any kind. Yeah, except that it's so woven into the fabric that people don't ever really discuss it. Yeah, the you hobbits know, the don't like, go to church, of course. The hobbits don't go to church. Den- Denethor calls out God at one point, um, and he mentions that in this book. He mentions book. pagan kings of old or heathen kings of old, right? Right. Um, so there's, but it's, it's it's woven very deeply in the fabric. But there there are no temples. You know, the only time you talk about worshiping something, it's always in a bad way. It's like Sauron's followers worship. Right, right. Well, it's like he's a dictator in there. There, <laughs> it's North Korea in there. They're all crying tears for. For the orc god, or you know, the, but the, those are all translations. But I think I think his thesis, which is he didn't make this as a ripoff of. I'm mean, I'm reading in this thesis, right? Because he's sort of coming to it, I guess, over the course of these blog posts. Um, Tolkien isn't the inspiration for Lord of the Rings. Oh, sorry, for Dungeons and Dragons. He is one of many, and I think his case is made just by reading through these these books on the list and writing about his responses to them because uh, he uses 
quotes from each of the books. I'm uh, pretty sure each of the books get, well, maybe, yeah, I, I was a little upset about the, get at least, at least a quote. Yeah, I was uh, really upset about the Conan section because he's reading the actual, you know, Conan the Sumerian book, which is not the way I would read Conan. Because I, I think the quotes he's he's pulling from are either from stories I haven't read or they're from from uh, from pastiches. That version, barely, he's probably reading the version that Gygax had access to. Yeah, absolutely. The original Howard Conan wasn't available. It wasn't published. It what was, what we now have, what we now have access to yeah. the original publications, um, access through you know the Del Rey books. It's it's much better. We have it much better, much easier than most people possibly. Can. Also, he kind of skims over Conan because people know Conan, right? He sort of says at the beginning, Tolkien, um, Howard, Lovecraft, to some extent, although he points out how most people's views of Lovecraft are just wrong. Um, he sort of says, these are the ones that people know. I'm going to spend more time on the more obscure ones that people don't know. Yep. And uh, I think that's that's good because it was like it was book reviews. I really want to read that um, Margaret Sinclair book. Actually, there's two on the list, isn't there? Um, I think there is. I have uh, a sign by Margaret Sinclair. I don't see. Uh, oh, yep, yeah, there we go. The Shadow People. Yeah, and the 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 second one he reviewed um, sounded really interesting. And I, I I should bring up that list. Grab my book here. Um, 224, page 224. Wow, you can just get trapped in the back of this book for all these tables and stuff. Okay, so it's Margaret St. Clair. The Shadow People and the Sign of the Labrys. So that sign of the Labrys. Labrys, like maybe Labyrinth or something. Um, that book sounded really interesting. I, I, I've, we're, we're going to be reading some more Jack Vance soon, but yeah, it's, it's really funny because if this, it says, I'll just read the, uh, section here. Inspiration for all the fantasy work I've done stems directly from the love my father showed when I was a tad, tad, as in tadpole, for he spent many hours telling me stories he made up as he went along, tales of cloaked old men who could grant wishes of magic rings, enchanted swords, or wicked sorcerers and dauntless swordsmen. Then, too, countless hundreds of comic books went down, and the long-gone EC ones certainly had their effect. The EC comics were cancelled almost in the way, same way that that uh, Dungeons & Dragons almost got cancelled, right? By the Satanic I mean, Panic. Yeah, there was a lot of, like, these guys are creating serial killers with their comics. That's right. All these juvenile delinquents, it's because they're reading comics. Um, had their effects. Science fiction, fantasy, and horror movies were a big influence. In fact, all of us tend to get ample helpings of fantasy when we are very young. From fairy tales, such as those written by the Brothers Grimm and Andrew Lang, these often lead to reading books of mythology, paging through bestiaries, and consultation of compilations of myths of various lands and peoples. Upon such a base, I built my interest in fantasy, being an avid reader of all science fiction and fantasy literature since 1950. The following authors were of particular inspiration to me. In some cases, I cite specific works. In others, I simply recommend all their fantasy writing to you. From such sources, as well as just about any of the other imaginative writing or screenplay you will 
be able to pluck kernels from which grow the fruits of exciting campaigns. Good reading. And then we get the list. Um, at the bottom of the list, it's a pretty substantial list, hence the uh, pretty substantial book here. Uh, it says, The most immediate influence upon AD&D were probably DeCamp and Pratt, R.E.H., Robert E. Howard, Fritz Leiber, Jack Vance, H.P.L., H.P. Lovecraft, and A. Merritt. But above all, authors, as well as many not listed, certainly helped to shape the form of the game. For this reason, and for the hours of reading enjoyment, I heartily recommend the works of these fine authors to you. That's pretty amazing. It's mm-hmm. a, it's kind of weird, like, that it's in, in the book. It's kind of saying, like, um, these are the guys that inspired me, but also these will help you make your gaming better. Like, I read these. Well, that's a like lot these. of the original D&D, especially AD&D. The, the idea behind it was not, like, this is the game, here's how the points work, here's how you score. It was a collaborative storytelling effort. Mm-hmm. Right? That was that was the whole concept behind it, is we're going to get together and we're going to tell a story together, and there's going to be dice rolling, and you're going to have some stats. But it wasn't that sort of min-maxed munchkin play that you get a lot of times in a computerized D&D games, mm-hmm. like Baldur's Gate or something. It's like, well, how do I stack my skills, get the most damage per round? Right. It was just storytelling. And in order to be a good storyteller, you have to have read a bunch of stories. Absolutely. The, the best storytellers are building on something that came before. And so he was giving you a list. Here's the things you should be building on. Mm-hmm. And, and read these, and it'll inspire better gameplay. And one of the things I think Jeff Johnson gets right um, in this in this analysis of all these works is he's saying, like, it's often it's the player's limitations that make the gaming less good than it could be. And his, his case, I think, is bus, uh, bolstered by, like, saying, you know, when you, when you were playing these games in the eight, late, uh, 70s, early 80s, you could go to the bookstore and most of these books were on the shelf, right? All these inspirational books. But, um, in the, in the 80s, when I went to the bookstore, most of these books weren't, like, I'd never seen Jack Williamson, uh, on the bookshelf. I've yeah, only I've seen my Jack Williamson. Uh, I've, right up my alley. Uh, very excited I've, now, I've read some of his stuff, but I didn't get it at the new bookstore. I had to go to a used bookstore and you know, it wasn't commonly there, but it's, it's, it's something to do with publishing, but it's also something to do with the changing media, right? Um, one of the things I say about why this podcast is not more popular because people say, why is that one popular? Because they're talking about movies and TV shows, right? If you talk about computer games, movies, TV shows, you just you just have a much bigger audience, right? If it's I, called pop culture for a popular, <laughs> absolutely. And so you know, most people's knowledge today of Dungeons and Dragons isn't coming from Dungeons and Dragons; it's coming from uh, that Netflix show where they had us. What was it called? Stranger Things. Uh, Stranger Things, right? Uh, where they have this retro 80s thing. I, they also did that on, um, uh, there was an HBO show, um, that the first season was very, uh, uh, yellow, King and Yellow, and the second season was, um, Dungeons and Dragons, which is kind of weird as sort of a serial killer 
I can't remember the name of the show. Is it True Crime? True Crime. That's the one. True Detective. Right. True Detective. Detective. That's even better. <laughs> both both uh, real pulp magazines. Um, yep. So, uh, yeah, it's not surprising most people don't have it. But I think his thesis is also right in that if you don't read all these fantastic stories, it's kind of like... It's kind of like locking your brain away. I mean, I'm reading this. This is my reading of what he's saying. It's like locking a kid in a closet with no books. <laughs> Their brain is not going to develop as well if they don't have access to great uh, materials. And I One think, thing he brings up a couple of times mm-hmm. is the way that Dungeons & Dragons has become its own sort of incestuous mythology. Uh-huh. He said, you know, at the beginning, the AD&D, the original box set, you know, it was clearly inspired by all these previous things. And the, the the idea was you would build an adventure of your own, but inspired by this kind of story or this author's style or something. Mm-hmm. And now you get more like the Forgotten Realms thing where it's like, well, this is how everything works. This is the mythology. Here's the history of the world. And you have to fit into this particular world. Yeah. It's a yeah. wide open fantasy sandbox, but here's all the rules that go around how you can play your wide open fantasy sandbox. Yeah, and indeed. It's it's almost like the way, you know, there there are... There are engines that are used to make other games. Mm-hmm. Um, the game I play a lot is PUBG, uh, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, and that's built on an, on an, a license of a, of another first person shooter game that's, you know, widely used by other developers. Um, but if you, if you only make first person shooters exactly the same as the one you've seen before, it really limits the gameplay. On the other hand, um, I think, you know, I, I was around in the 80s when they started turning Dungeons & Dragons books into Dungeons & Dragons computer games where you could, you know, see your character Icewind on screen. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I, I, it was nice when Dale it was uh, Pool of Radiance. Oh, uh, yeah. And then I think there's Pool of Darkness as a sequel. I never played that one. But I, I was playing all of the knockoffs too, like, um, wizardry on the Apple too. And ha- having no n- dungeon master means you can't play, uh, unless you're playing as the, with a computer as the dungeon master. But the computer is very limiting. It, you're basically, as he's saying, on rails, right? It's a, yeah, you it, can do A or B. Mm-hmm. The outcome is sort of set. And you can, you can create an illusion, uh, that that's not true with modern, like, uh, I couldn't believe when I started playing Fallout 3, how amazing it felt to get out of the dungeon, step out into the, you know, wasteland. And I, I didn't have a particular place I needed to go. I looked around. I'm like, there's stuff all around me. It goes way over there. And that's the, a feeling you have in Dungeons and Dragons, but it's, it's dependent on a really good narr- uh, narrator, really good dungeon master, right? Who actually has set up a bunch of options, but hopefully will guide you to the best part. And, and so when you get into, you know, you get out of the vault and you step into this other world and you can go in any direction, there's adventures around every corner. Um, but once you get into those, you know, you meet somebody. Then the dialogue tree comes out and then you realize, oh, it isn't as amazingly free as it is in real Dungeons and Dragons, a real role playing game where it's not a robot. I want to save this former 
<laughs> that's, I, I don't have any. I, sure, let's roll some dice. Let's uh, see if you can save the farmer. That's right. In the video game, it's like you stop. There's a scripted scene. The farmer's eaten by something. It's like, well, now you get to fight the thing. Right. Or I want to steal the farmer's pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something you can do. And uh, so, so uh, the immaturity of the players, the lack of uh, ability to, you know, have read all these these works makes it hard and i know this because i've i've dm'd uh a few games and it's a skill for sure you have to get good at it and it's also it's like um frisbee you know when you're playing you want everybody to be throwing the frisbee to each other not away from each other <laughs> um it's be cooperative it is co- it has to be cooperative and when it works it, it is very magical uh, but it is very easy to go wrong, and the, all these intense rules, uh, you know, I, the bane of my existence was to hit armor class zero. <laughs> like, oh shit, the math, fuck, I gotta get the <laughs> calculator out to figure out what's going on. And it's like, well, that's that part I'd rather have a computer take care of. I was watching a, I, I was watching an episode of uh, Star Trek Voyager. Last night, I'm watching all of Voyager, and uh, they had this episode where Naomi Wildman, if you remember this or know anything about it, was a baby born in the Delta Quadrant, and uh, she's the only one on the spaceship uh, that's a kid, and uh, it turns out that they have on the holodeck a like kid's adventure sort of holo- holodeck program, holo novel. Guess that makes sense. Right. And so she's in there and she, she, it's a, basically it's a Wizard of Oz Dungeons and Dragons style adventure, but, you know, nerfed so nobody gets hurt or anything. And yeah, bad things happen, but, um, the kid you know, uses her knowledge of, of simple elements like water and wood to solve problems and help the sort of doofusy denizens of this this uh, forest, magical forest, right? Um, and what was so cool is when, um, when we see her in there as a, you know, I don't know, six year old, um, with her godfather, Neelix, the alien who's never, never grew up with holodeck stuff, right? Um, he doesn't know anything. And then w- she plays around in there for a while. Um, on the outside, something bad is happening to her family, right? On the inside, this is the way she, distracts herself and then um later on we see uh Janeway come come into the holodeck at the end of the episode and the creatures of the forest recognize her he says why am i how you've grown and she says oh i remember all the fun adventures we had that is the ideal form of dungeons and dragons right it's where you've got a persistent uh, role playing DM, really good at their job, and they remember all the details of like your inventory <laughs> for you. But you inventory. get, to, oh my god, inventory like or as mentioned in this book, right? The time, uh, worrying about uh, keeping a very strict schedule for time. So how many yes. torches you have to bring? Even playing a game like um, modern Dungeons and Dragons style game like. Um, Darkest Dungeon. I always forget how many torches I need. 
because I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to take too many torches. But, you know, and then how much food yeah, you need to bring? Drop pretty quickly. Oh, my you, God. Yeah, it's you, you so not good. Torches, which is, you have enough torches. <laughs> I need to bring some rope. <laughs> Go to the rope store. <laughs> Buy some more rope because I might need to climb down a cliff. And they say, well, your encumbrance is going up. I'm like, damn it. And so in games like uh, Fallout, you seem to have like an inventory. <laughs> you know, you can take 10,000 items in your inventory. Um, so all of that, those management details, those are the big stumbling blocks for the game, right? But this is the opposite. This is about the creativity and the flow. The, the Why is this such an amazing story? And how do we make that? How do we let our players have that same kind of adventure? Exactly. Exactly. And so, um, one when, thing I like that he hits a lot in here mm-hmm. is the idea of what he calls domain play. Yes. Once you sort of move beyond, you know, how do I beat this monster? How do I stab it? How do I beat the armor? Oh, it's resistant to acid. I've got to use the other, you know, whatever. Like that's the sort of tier one play. Mm-hmm. There's that domain play where you've, you've done this enough that you're an actual hero. You, you know, there's a town that, you know, you kind of run or maybe a country that you kind of run you get to higher levels and you've got spouses and you've got retainers and you've got all these sort of resources behind you. And nobody really plays that way anymore because it gets in the way of, well, yeah, I don't want to worry about that. Like, how do I, all those resources, I just want to get a bigger magical sword that I can stab the next thing even harder. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that it, it's a real phenomenon. So, when I played Fallout and Fallout New Vegas, Fallout 2, I played 1 and 2, but it was 3. I was like, oh my god, this game is huge. And then there was Fallout New Vegas and Fallout 4. It's it's kind of Gamma World, I guess, style game. Right, post-apocalyptic. But post-apocalyptic set in a particular place like Washington, D.C., uh, or whatever. And that there's stories everywhere, around every corner, and missions and all that. But when I f- first started playing, I like I kill some monster and there's like a bottle cap in his pocket. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do with a bottle cap? And then I realize, oh, that's the currency. I left behind all these bottle caps. And now I'm starting really worried about, about, uh, inventory management. And that it's almost ruinous to my, my participation in the game. Because I'm, I'm so worried, like, well, you know, this gun is slightly better, but that one needs repair. And all that stuff is not the domain play, right? That's the mechanics and all that stuff. What we want is the story and how to get that realism. Um, but it is, it, it in playing Dungeons and Dragons, there's like, whatever mechanics are there, leveling up. That was a big thing in Fallout as well. Leveling up in Dungeons and Dragons, huge thing, right? You get your stats increased, your health increases, your, you, uh, gain new abilities, right? And new spells, new attacks, mm-hmm. more attacks. And it, it's like achievement unlocked. And it's not like, um, that happens in real life. I mean, we fake it with all sorts of, I got an award. <laughs> Here's a certificate from the university that makes you a real scholar now, right? Like all that stuff. But I, uh, I think that that kind of stuff was always dangerous in the game, but it's just as dangerous in real life too, right? Like if you get an award that makes you feel like you're a real boy now, (laughs) 
um, that's dangerous because then you, you think, well, I've been approved. I should be able to, it's, it's like getting promoted in the army, right? They, they have lots of people getting promoted in the army, but when the actual war starts, they sort of shuffle off all the guys who are highly ranked to jobs where they won't kill everyone, right? You're you're in uh, hide them behind the front lines somewhere where they're not going to do way behind doing. the front lines because uh, Eisenhower is needed. <laughs> you promote this colonel who you know doesn't get along with the 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 promotion chain to su- supreme allied commander in the uh, European theater because you need somebody who's good at the job. The idea of you know getting your stats higher getting your achievement unlocked, you know, getting a prestigious new vehicle, all of that should be set aside in in the game and in life to prevent, you know, sort of a false understanding of what we're here to do. Not just in the game, but in life, right? What we're here to do is not to get the awards and the little check mark and the little pat on the back that says you're you're a real boy now. But rather, it's like, the awe. That's what I want. I want to have that sense of awe when I came out of uh, the vault in Fallout 3 and say, oh my god! Like the first time I played Dungeons & Dragons, I, I'm at some some guy's house <laughs> and they take you down into the basement and they set you up at a table and give you a piece of paper and they say, okay, we're going to play a game. And I'm like, what? I don't get it. Where's the board? <laughs> the board's in your head, man. Say again. Where's my token? Where did I... <laughs> that's that's right. Where's the, the finish line? And, and you know that became a part of it, right? Like you get these little lead figures. I guess they're not lead anymore. I don't know. Maybe they're still lead. Um, that would represent. Yeah, that that you could you know paint or whatever, and they represent your character. Well, my character just got a new bow, and he doesn't have that, right? So that whole aspect of it is. All the, uh, all of the, you know, like some people spend a lot of time caring about what colored dice they have, right? Mm -hmm. The dice are the least interesting part of the game. The most interesting part. Cool Call of Cthulhu dice, Elder (laughs) Signs on them. (laughs) They're cool, cool, but that's the least cool part of the game. The cool part of the game is meeting Satagwa. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and getting a glimpse of him through a keyhole and saying, Oh my God. And then having the, the play session just work perfectly. And, you know, everybody's on the same wavelength and yeah, sure. Somebody loses their sanity. Another character dies, but it was a kind of, uh, joy a kind of unique joy. And it was it, until we got it, you know, computer games were became mainstream with, you know, console games and all that stuff, which was not, you know, uh, universal at, at one point. Um, most people couldn't understand it. It was just not. And I think most people, if you have never played Dungeons and Dragons with a good DM and a good campaign or even a good session, it's, it's all, it's impossible to understand how cool it is. It's like a, uh, it's like reading a really good book, but completely different. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, 
it's a storytelling event. Um, but you can kind of see why the satanic panic of the 80s happened because people just didn't really understand what was going on. Of course. You can imagine some some mom, like, you're doing what? We're sitting around and we're, we're pretending that we're like, I'm I killed a demon. I am a demon. <laughs> fighting a demon. And like, well, you're pretending? Like, are you, what is going on? What, are you, what do you mean? And at the end of the day, it's just a more advanced version of little kids running around playing the games. Like, well, I'm, I'm a cop, but I'm a robber. And we're doing the thing. And yeah. You're just imagining something and playing it out, and this just is a little more structured. And it is advanced that. It's and, the same basic idea. And but. what's what's cool is it's actually allows an extension of that, right? So, to me, LARPing didn't make a lot of sense <laughs> once I heard about it because it's like you're a high school, uh, you know, you're a university kid running around with a with a sword. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but. Um, when you're six years old and you have a stick and that stick is a sword, uh, or, you know, you have a rope swing and that, that leads to the castle, <laughs> you climb to the castle. That all makes sense. So at, after a certain age, you can go down to the basement in the middle of winter, um, get out your dice and have a story that has that. But when the guy says, I shot you. And he says, no, you didn't. You missed. Now we actually have a judge the dice right and these the, dice say i hit you for double damage that's right and so yeah it, it, it is important that they're there as a judge in the same way that the computer can t- calculate all the uh angles for your shooting or whatever but in the same way that most computer games that are first person shooters i mean it's really it's built into it right fps they're all shooting games. And so when a game comes along like uh, Portal, where it's a shooting game, it's it's amazing, right? It's a shooting game. There is no, you know, nobody to kill exactly, but it's a puzzle game. It's first person. That's amazing. Because it breaks what you thought was possible. And uh, there's a game called The Long Dark, which is it's a first-person shooter. Um, you don't have any guns, basically. You can find some, and you can use them to kill animals that you will skin and eat. But mostly what you're doing is gathering firewood, <laughs> boiling water, finding shelter, you know, you know, making mittens. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and it, it has a completely different kind of feel to the frenetic first person shooter game it's it's almost zen meditative and it causes kind of um you know you feel like this constant worry about food warmth water you know rest it's it's like you're trying to achieve balance all the time and it it gives it causes a very strange effect if we can make role playing games that aren't just Murder hobos go into dungeon. I, I was never a fan of the dungeon adventure. I always wanted the wilderness adventure when I was playing. I can see how everything is opened up by reading books like that are on the list here. Almost none of them are dungeons, right? The, he talks yeah. about the. Uh, I think there's one. Yeah. Sign the Labyrinth, which is an actual dungeon. Right, an actual dungeon. So we even. Not a lot of dragons on this. No, not a lot of dragons. And when when I played Dungeons and Dragons, there was almost never any dragons, right? 
because they're just I've, too high level. I've been playing for like 20 years. I've fought a grand total of two dragons. Wow. I mean, it just, it yeah. I think, I think that that's probably how many I fought as well. It's not, it's not a common occurrence. You wouldn't even see them generally. Um, but, uh, the dungeon certainly was a thing. And I think it's because it, we have an idea. We need to be on rails. We need to limit. And I think Jeffrey Johnson has it, it right. He's talking about how, what we need to do as dungeon masters. Not that I'm dungeon mastering much. Um, and what players need to do as players and players need to read the, read other books to expand their imagination so that they can, See, it's and not when presented just, with an obstacle. You don't just say, "Hey, can I stab this?" Yes. No. Can I? Can I set it on fire? Then <laughs> I'm running out of options very quickly. Here. <laughs> That's right. Um, I I like the idea of having a a character with massive charisma, right? <laughs> so they just make friends with all the these monsters. But the problem is, is that the general way a dungeon master does stuff is you kill stuff, you get the XP. Right? right. Rather than you convince the farmer to let you have a drink from his well. <laughs> you don't get any XP oh, for that. Cute. It's not tied to that. No. There are a lot of games now. People complain about this a lot these days. Like, well, Dungeons Dragons is all about the murder hobo. And it's mm-hmm. all combat oriented. And I want to do more storytelling. And there's this this view that you can't do that in Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the shortcomings people are complaining about are just, I don't want to say traditional, but they've sort of this this way that it has played that is built up over the years, which is not the way it was originally designed. I mean, the original game is clearly combat oriented. That's where the rules kind of focus. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, those are the epic concept. moments, right? Yeah. It was about, it was, it was a lot bigger than that. You know, it was supposed to be by the time you get to a high level character, you're running a country, you're running a whole world and you're doing interdimensional travel and right. You know, meetings, you know, going to street. You can become a God. That was always the way the game was supposed to be run. And a lot of it's become this sort of motor, murder hobo, you know, maxing your stats, doing doing the most damage per attack. And people have come up with totally different games trying to get back into that storytelling mode. Mm-hmm. Um, one really interesting one that I've heard of but never played, uh, Leia Labrasco has developed a game where you play more or less uh, the party returning from the destruction of the One Ring back to Hobbiton. Mm-hmm. Like the war is over and you and your party are coming back from the war and you've all got hurts, and you've got injuries, you've got psychic damage, and wow. things that have happened to you, and you're trying to kind of deal with them and return back home. And that's heal. an interesting idea. And that's the whole concept of the game. And yeah. it's the part of the story that Tolkien skipped over a lot of that. Like it's he did, there, yeah. But he was even Tolkien was like, yeah, well, we're going to... And then they went home. Right. And this whole game is like, well, we're going to play that part of it. And it's just a weird concept mm-hmm. to me. And I'm uh, fascinated by it. Yeah, I haven't played it yet, but it's it sounds really interesting. I I was looking for that kind of storytelling. I I absolutely love that. One one of the things um, that was bothersome to me is if you have a player character sheet in front of you, you know, list your inventory and stuff like that, but also list your intelligence and your your wisdom and your strength and how what your encumbrance level can be and your movement speed, all that stuff, right? And you can look over at the other players around you and you say, oh, look, he has uh, 17 uh, strength and I only have 14 strength. This is not good. I, he's stronger than me. Um, but in real life, <laughs> you can see a guy who doesn't look that buff, who is super fucking strong, right? He, he's not meaty buff. He's not like gym buff. 
but you can see him like throwing wood all day long. And I say, yeah. well, Jesus, that guy looks like he's just a dude, but he's really strong. And you can't tell people's skills. So in a way, I almost want it to be, we don't have the player character sheet at all, right? <laughs> we just have a sort of a sense of, I'm good at this. And there, those stats are all there, right? Those stats are all there. They're just hidden from us so that we... Keep it under the hood. Yeah, we keep it under the hood so that we can try things. So it, it'd be like... Um, I keep bringing it back to Fallout because it's it's just so uh, so more. I spent way more time with it recently, um, and I say recently, like ten or whatever years ago. Um, if you max out your stats on like uh, charisma, you get extra speech options, right? Which is try and persuade people. Um, but if if you practice those things and you get good at them or luck out on them and all these dice rolls are happening behind the scenes. Um, that's what I kind of want to see happen is, is so that <laughs> you are less involved in what those numbers are on the page, right? It's, it's like the guy who goes to the gym and says, yeah, I'm benching 250 right now, but by next, next fall, I'm going to be doing 350. <laughs> Oh, wait. These numbers are a little low, I think. <laughs> right. The real gym guys are pushing a lot more. Weight. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a guy who's doing a lot of powerlifting, right? You but even the, lift, bro? That's right. That's the, the, that's the mentality. See, the thing is, is you get all these buff muscles and then what do you do? You go look at, you measure your, your pecs and <laughs> your biceps and you do nothing with them, right? That kind of, um, I need to get a uh, suit of armor because suit of armor rather than, uh, I mean, this is actually why I didn't want to play the Age of Conan game more than I did because Conan doesn't need all this shit. The magic sword doesn't need, you know, the girdle. Yeah, of all the characters who doesn't need a big inventory of gear. Indeed. <laughs> like I got a dagger. On a fur diaper, I'm good to go. <laughs> maybe some boots if we've had a really good week. That's right. <laughs> and the boots are totally optional because I'm going to steal that guy's horse. And my feet are very well padded from all the running I did in Samaria all the way to down to down here. I don't need all that. In That's what I love about Robert E. Howard's Conan. Inventory management, absolutely inessential, right? 100% missing. And so when you play the game, you're like, okay, here's a new land to explore. And bring, shiny new sword to unlock. And Conan would say, don't need it. There's a girl over there and a flagon of wine. Drop it. He'd run off the next thing. That's right. The flagon of wine and the girl are far more important than the shine. I mean, I never played World of Warcraft, but that's what it seemed to be, right? Is from the outside, it looked like you getting shiny new armor for your horse or your mount. Yeah. And a lot of it, I think part of the conceit of this book, right? Is that people are focused more on that kind of thing and yes. how they can change the world. Right. Yes. Um, so my role-playing video game that I go back to a lot, uh, one of them is Knights of the Old Republic, which is fantastic. I've never even the heard other of one it. Was, um, Oh, Knights of the Old Republic. Yes. I have heard yeah, of it. Star Wars. Yes. But the other one was the Elder Scrolls, um, and I played Oblivion. That was my version. Right. I play Skyrim these days. Right. I was an Oblivion guy. And as you go through the game, there are all these 
side quests, and there are these guilds you can join. And before you get to the end game, you can easily be the leader of the Mage Guild and the leader of the Thieves Guild and the leader of the Fighters Guild right. and you know the hero of the Nine. And you can have all these titles. You can do all these things. You should be like a rock star in this world. You should walk into the place and be like, holy shit, that's the most powerful wizard and right. the most powerful fighter and the most powerful thief in the whole world. And he's here. But instead, it's like, oh, you wanted to buy bread? <laughs> that's yeah. right. Um, no, go away. <laughs> like, no one ever – it doesn't change anything. You get more right. stats. But all the stuff you've done, you've unlocked some stats and some weapons and some gear, and that's it. Yeah, that's no, it. The game doesn't care. The game doesn't care. Um, but when it does, when games are capable of caring, it's that same kind of feeling. So when when I was playing Fallout and I found out about this, you could like find – you find a, a grave – and you rob the grave, and you do that a few times, then you get like a, uh, it's an anti-perk, it says grave digger, or something like that. <laughs> you can like, if you're really hungry, you can eat a, a dead person, <laughs> and then you get like a, another one, you get a bad reputation, people don't want to deal with you in town. That is awesome, right? That is the kind of, uh, you're calling it domain play, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's not about, it's not about the, uh, hitting the arrow into the orc it's about having the orc say ah, i know of you i know you of old i've heard of your, of your reputation <laughs> all throughout my kingdom you've been slaughtering my people that's the that's the fun part um there was a book we did as a show uh, back in episode 576 called the many colored land by julian may have you heard of this book no really interesting book um so she published it in 81, um, which is, you know, right after Dungeons and Dragons is happening. Um, but it's, I'm pretty sure she developed it completely independently of, of the, uh, Dungeons and Dragons things. But I'll just read the, uh, the summary if there is one. Nope, there isn't one. So I'm going to go by memory. Basically what, what's going on is, um, in the future, they develop a time portal back to a cave in, uh, I want to say, the Pliocene? Pliocene? Yeah, Pliocene. Of Earth in France. So you have this cave you can go into in, in modern-day France or future France, and you come out. It's a one-way gate to the Pliocene, right? Um, and they, the society on Earth starts using it as a export of criminals. And uh, so all these players get sent to a time where there's giant toadstool forests in Europe. And there's all these, you know, megafauna. And that's really cool, right? But then, get this, there's these aliens that are visiting Earth at the time. And they have psychic powers that allow them to basically be wizards. Um, and they can control people, uh, using their psionic powers. And there's, as you're coming out of the gate, basically you get teamed up with one of the two factions. And there's a party that's assembled and we've got all these weird people. One is a thief and one's a healer. And it's like, holy shit, this is a really great idea. And it's almost all based on uh, Julian May's interest in geology and history. And she ties it into 
the uh, the Wild Hunt, so that all the backstory for for European mythology, fairies, and all that stuff, is the leftovers from the Pliocene, where these aliens were fighting for dominance of Earth, um, and using the bodies of of the creatures and the beings that were there, including these humans who are sent back in time. That is a Dungeons and Dragons adventure, except it doesn't feel like one because they're aliens, right? But I think Jeffrey Johnson's point is is it's totally accommodatable within Dungeons and Dragons, the original. Sure. Right. Like half the things in this list are straight sci-fi. Right, right. And that is really interesting because that is not what I got. When by the time I got into Dungeons and Dragons, I, I did see the basic books, but I wasn't DMing. Um, and I, I was thinking all through the lens of Tolkien. I was always thinking of, oh, okay, Dragonlance. There we go. There's a, you know, they had Greyhawk, I think, a little bit That's before. That's how it's supposed to be, right? Right, right. And, and when you have Kryn and this, uh, alternate planet that's not gra- the world of Greyhawk, um, which I thought world of Greyhawk was the, the real place all the adventures took place, but turns out that's not the case, right? And then we get this alternate world that's Dragonlance world where there are no hobbits. Now there's, uh, Kinder instead, which are their version of hobbits without furry feet, right? And there's also these dragon people, right? Um, that, that's, oh, that's cool. But I was stuck in the idea that Dungeons and Dragons is only fantasy of this kind. And so, yeah, I didn't understand, I didn't understand Vancey and magic was inspired by, you know, the game magic was inspired by Jack Vance. And it's very, it was very interesting and very cool, but it was seemed like a arbitrary at the time because you're not, you don't have all this backstory. I think yeah, you don't understand the building blocks that have gone into what you're doing now. Appendix N should have been like Appendix A, you know, like it, it probably would have helped a lot of readers to uh, just to have the internet back then so that they can like look <laughs> stuff up. Differences. We can kind of just pull these things up and dude, oh, it's incredible. Uh, this is available on Gutenberg. I mean, a lot of it's public. Oh, now. so much. So I, I went so through read the it anytime you want. Yeah, I, I did a blog post in 2014 about Appendix N, and I, I went through the whole list, and I said, the, these ones are available in audio. This one's probably never coming to audio. Um, and there are more that have been done, but it, there's still – there is a tremendous backlog of books that I've never heard of that just pop up out of the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s that are, you know – Oh, here's a cover scan of a book I've never seen before. That's so amazing. It's never been republished. You know, it's never been reprinted. Indeed. Never... And and because because they're not all equally competing in the public domain, right, to see you know what is actually great, what's being pushed by a publisher versus the what I think he talks about it a couple times in this book, uh the cult of the new I think that that is a serious problem that humans have had for a long time. Probably the 20th century, maybe going back a little farther. <laughs> they always want the latest thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it, it's new. So let's go see it. Right. What the movie theaters, when you go to the movie theater, 
your options are a bunch of new movies or a bunch of new movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's the same problem I see with Netflix, right? I go on Netflix and I'm like, okay, bunch of new Netflix movies and a bunch of shows from two years ago. Where There's nothing from before 1987, like on ah, dude, all. it's almost impossible to. F- uh, so I would go into the catalog and I type in 1960 and see what comes up. 1970, see what comes up, and we'd get a handful. So like when they had the uh, movie pr- The Professionals with Lee Marvin, um, mm-hmm. great movie, fabulous movie, right? Oh, that's amazing! I'm I'm so happy to see it on there. Um, and that's like the only example of a 70s Western. But there's decades and decades of this stuff. And I think what made Dungeons & Dragons so good is Gary Gygax and uh, I guess Arneson is the other guy. Just having read all these books saying, we can bring this in and 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 opening up rather than closing down to just whatever's new yeah and it and like i said before they there's sort of this self-enforcing mythology around dungeon dragons mm-hmm. now where this is how it has to work and this is the kind of world it is that's right which it wasn't intended to be originally it's supposed to be much you know you your campaign is set up your way with you know your own gods and everything everything's however you want it to be tell the to tell the kind of story you want mm-hmm that's um I, I recommended I don't I doubt you did the extra homework I uh, sometimes assigned but I, I recently watched this movie called Charisma Zero. Did you happen to see it? I, I did not. Okay, so basically it's about a uh, typical uh, loser uh, dungeon master guy who lives with his grandma or whatever, um, and he's he's campaigning and his whole life is his campaign that he's creating and he he's domineering and he's kind of an asshole. So hence the title charisma zero. Right. Um, and, uh, he loses a player to a real life problem. His players getting divorced and he just can't deal with. So he tries to recruit someone else and he finds a hipster who, uh, wants to join and he said, Oh, that's fine. Right. But then the hipster is way too cool. And so the, the, the drama is between, between this hipster sort of taking over his dungeon, dungeon mastering campaign and this loser dungeon master. And he's a loser for sure. That's sort of pointed out. What's not pointed out is, you know, what made him a loser, the economic system, the, you know, poor education, the broken family. I mean, I guess the broken family's a little bit pointed out. But what's what's kind of cool is it's it's Dungeons and Dragons, but he says, no, no, it's not Dungeons and Dragons. This is my own system. I'm making my own game. <laughs> this is the way this part works. This is the way that part works. And there's some genuine reality going on there, right? The guy is people I've met. <laughs> that guy is me in a certain in certain modes, right? And uh it's hard to understand because it's a it's a lifestyle, right? There are people who live and breathe Dungeons and Dragons and their campaigns. That's amazing. But it's also kind of sad, but it's also kind of amazing. And so engaging with the source material, I think, is a way of 
getting out of the focused on this particular campaign, but also creating your own campaign. The the whole um, modules, right? Modules seem to come quite a bit later, right? The first modules are like, this is one that was run at this uh, Gen Con, right? And I remember yeah. reading about what Gen Con was and like, what the hell? Where's Wisconsin? Right? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it's Tomb of Annihilation. Was yeah. The table game they ran at the con where you know, people would just sit down, you'd run your character until they died, and then right. the next guy would step in the seat because there's a whole line of people at the convention right. wanting to play this game with Gygax, and so he would just run a meat grinder simulation, you know, just <laughs> keep killing players and the next player can drop in keep parachute in and it was designed around this concept right and in- tomb of annihilation um have you Definitely. seen uh my friend jason thompson's uh posters for dungeon dragons modules no oh dude he's so good um he so just type in uh jason thompson uh thompson is t-h-o-m-p-s-o-n and then uh D&D map and what he does oh man it's amazing hit images um he takes these modules and he makes a giant poster showing all the rooms in the dungeon that you go to um and there's dozens of them it's amazing it's amazing this is kind of, he's working on a game right now called um I think it's I think he's done. It's a Dreamlands game based on the Lovecraft and Dunsany uh works. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it sounds great. He's he's he said he had I think 37 species of zoogs <laughs> from uh the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Um Dreamland is uh, is a place where I spend uh probably six, seven, eight hours a night. And uh, I tell you, the gameplay there is amazing. It's not consistent. <laughs> but um, the, the, getting getting the idea of, um, of gameplay without the focus on the stats and the dice, but all on the storytelling, mm-hmm. is so fun. So good. Um, One thing uh, I like that he brings up in here a fair number of times, is mm-hmm. the idea that there used to be kinds of stories that mm-hmm. no one knows how to tell anymore. Right. That kind of planetary, ter- oh, sorry, planetary romance. Mm-hmm. The romance is an actual thing. Mm-hmm. And it just can't be done without irony anymore. Right. I, I, the only way to really get a feel for what it is or what it's supposed to be or what it could be is to read the old stuff because no one writes it. That's no one right. No can write it that way anymore without being either really derivative or winking and nodding or you know subverting expectations or whatever else it right be. right or you know uh we can gender flip it by using a a program but that's not the same thing right um and i get that there are stages of uh stuff but it it does seem to be a a lack there does seem to be a lack of planetary romance these days and I'm not, I'm not a writer of long novel length stuff like most of the stuff on the list here, right? I mean, August Derelith is just listed out. Most of his stuff's not worth reading that I've read, but he does have some interesting stuff. And he talked in his section talking about the Trail of Cthulhu. Um, he made a pretty interesting case for it. Um, it's more of what you had. It's not exactly 
Uh, it's not exactly what Lovecraft was doing. Lovecraft's a different kind of writer. But it does have Cthulhu in it, and it does have this magic wand, and it does have this way of summoning. And so that's and once, where... Once Lovecraft's dead, you got to take what you can get. Yeah, well, and they did. They bought it, right? But um, I think I think that that's right. And there is a movement. I don't really understand. I don't keep up with the... Uh, this sad puppies and other things, the awards contest. Yeah. The Hugo award contest is, you know, the slate of this group. So the guy, John C. Wright, I think is, is disliked by Paul because he's involved in some sort of the slate idea of like getting writers who aren't in the clique, the popular clique, uh, into the award system. I, I don't think, Anybody should be writing for awards or trying to get awards. I think it's a mistake by the readers and the writers to do that. But um, if if your ability to get into people's hands is infringed by not having attention given to you, uh, that might be part of the issue. It's it's really hard to say. So the reason I wanted to read this book is because I'm interested in Appendix N and old books. And this is a list of old books. Um, and I found several on here that I want to read that I haven't Even read. Even as someone who spends a lot of his time dealing with old old fiction, you know, especially old sci-fi, old fantasy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's kind of my wheelhouse. There were a lot of things on here that were a lot that I'd heard of but never gotten around to reading. Right. And there were a lot that I had never even heard of. And Sounded really interesting. Some of them didn't sound that great. No, some of them yeah. sounded pretty weak. Um, I mean, it's pretty clear about that. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I, 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 Nine I, Princes of Amber. I'm, I'm going to go track that down. I, I read the first one. It's it's pretty uh, compelling reading. I'm not a series guy, but it was is super readable. And if you can get the, uh, it's pretty hard to get the Roger Zelazny reading Roger Zelazny version. Um, there's an mm-hmm. unabridged one out there somewhere. It might not be available on Audible. Um, that is quite good because he's a really good narrator and he knows how to read his cigarette voice. <laughs> yeah, apparently cigarettes are a big theme. <laughs> apparently, yeah. Um, I seem to remember this, there were some cigarettes smoking in that first book. Um, and, uh, World of Tears by Philip Jose Farmer. I'm not a huge, huge farmer guy, but I do like his writing. I like his sense of humor. Um, and that book sounds really interesting. I wonder if that's available as an audiobook. Um, and Gardner F. Fox, I think you're following the Gardner F. Fox account on um, Twitter, right? Yeah, I do. So we actually, um, when he was scanning his books, because he's building the library of yeah, books. Yeah. And he was actually sending me the cover scans as he went through. Oh, cool. Yeah. Is, is Gardner F. Fox alive and involved? No, he's been dead for quite a while. That's what I um, thought, right? It's. Whoever's running the, his the account. Guy who's, the guy who's doing the artwork. Uh-huh. Is, I think the guy running the account. Nice. Yeah, I, I thought that that was a really innovative way to get people interested. I I wish his audiobooks that he's he's selling were not read by AIs. But <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but uh, that's better than nothing. Um, it feels like a very small organization. Uh, yeah, I, I would assume but so. But it's really pretty slick. This author is like, I want more people to read Gardner Fox. I get it. So I'm going to do it. everything I can to put these out there, make them easy to get, easy to read. And he's and given away a lot, and that's a good marketing gimmick. 
because it makes me want to read the stuff. I, I've been looking at a lot more Garner at Fox lately than I have uh, in the past. And it's I, I didn't realize he was so connected to comics as well, all the comics in, he was involved in, and not just like uh, Crom, <laughs> his Conan ripoff, but he, he was ripping off everything. That guy was really into, you know, doing pastiche of his own devising. Part of it is he's that sort of old school pulp author who's just cranking out for pay, yep, right? He's absolutely. Like, well, I'm I'm an artist and I'm develop. I'm telling this story. He's just like, oh, you need I, five books by the end of the year? Yeah, okay, sure. I can do, just crank them out. Only five? <laughs> he <laughs> seems to have. He seems to have hundreds. It, it's incredible. He, he wrote a lot. Yeah, um, William Gibson, the Shadow Guy. Was amazing. That dude cranked out a book a month for decades. It was William Gibson. Uh, yeah, I think. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, no, it, W. Gibson. Yeah, I, I know who you're talking about. William Gibson's a different guy, right? Oh, um, I'm sorry. That's the that's the neuromancer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lester Gibson. Lester. Now I'm blanking. Gibson. He wrote the Shadow. Shadow. Um. Yeah. Gibson. Hmm. Shadow Returns. Uh, yeah. Uh, Walter Gibson. Walter Gibson. I'm sorry. Lester Dent. I was thinking Lester Dent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Though Those guys, <laughs> they definitely pumped out thousands and thousands of, of words. Incredible amounts of words. Um, so I'm going to, we're going to do a Jack Vance pretty soon. You might want to be in on that. I, I've only, I've only read a limited amount. His, uh, one called The Moon Moth. Amazing. Have you read that one? I've read a few few of his books. Um, Dragon Riders, or Dragon Masters, um, and then the, what they, the Alistor books. He's got a bunch of books set on different planets that I've mm-hmm. mm-hmm. They're all kind of loosely related. Um, and then he had a book called Planet of Adventure. Yeah, we're going to do that one at some point because that sounded Planet really good. Planet of Adventure is fantastic. I like just I like really old planets. School. I like adventures. I like Jack Vance. His, he, he's got a like. Um, I don't know, kind of depth to his his worlds. A little like it's not just here's a a, a plastered you know castle <laughs> that if you turn the corner uh, there's nothing behind it but you know some s- supporting two by fours. It's more like um, there's a velvet uh, tapestry and behind that there's some stone and in the grout there's like the bones of <laughs> A goblin, right? Like it feels like there's a lot more to his worlds than other he was writers. A master of sketching out a whole world, yeah. New lines, yeah. It wasn't page after page after page of backstory, you know, right? It wasn't short R. R. Martin, where it's like here's ten thousand pages about right. all these things. It just, just drown you in people, and yeah. they did these things for this reason, and we're gonna move on and tell the actual story. Mm-hmm. But in just a few lines, he could sketch so much detail. And he used footnotes a lot. He would put footnotes to fake books that he had made up. Yeah. And, and of course, you couldn't check back then. <laughs> you know who else did that? Was uh, And he's not on this list. Borges. <laughs> Sometimes you're reading Borges and like, okay, this is all made up. And then you and then you go and look it up after. It's like, oh, no, no, this part's all real. That one is made up, and this part's all real. And you can't tell, because he knows, because he's Borges, he lives and works in the library, right? But uh, that kind of um, granular detail, uh, it's 
it's irreproducible except by another amazing author, a different one, right? Who does it in a different way. I was just realizing this morning in the shower, it's like, you know, I've read a lot of Philip K. Dick, but I'm just realizing now he wrote a lot about spies. Like, that's really weird. I I was listening to uh, um, Mr. Jim Moon's show on on a story I've done a podcast on called, uh, uh, shit, I can't remember the name of it. It's about a, um, uh, an asteroid with, uh, a bunch of, it's kind of, it's kind of like a set in the Pacific during world war two, you know, one of those islands full of engineers. What are those guys called? Seabees. Yeah. Right. The Seabees are on this asteroid and they're building landing strips or whatever. And, um, the problem is uh, the the soldiers, when they're off duty, they go off into the forest and they are doing something. And then, then when they come back, they stop working and they just like want to sit in the sun all day. <laughs> um, what the heck's the name of this story? Not ringing a bell. Yeah, I've got, I've got it in my head, but it's, let's see. Oh, uh, Okay. He says, oh, Piper in the Woods, that's what it's called. So the the story never tells you what it's doing. And, you know, at the end you don't say, oh, my God, this is um, this, right? That's what it was the whole time. It never tells you. Twist. It just, yeah, it, it, the twist is at the end the psychiatrist is one of the things that he's been studying, one of the deviants. These guys, mm-hmm. they go off into the woods. There's maybe something in the woods. And when they come back out of the woods, they they say, I'm a plant. <laughs> like, I am just want to sit in the sun all day and absorb its rays. I can't work anymore. Sorry. And it's like spreading, right? It's like, what does this all mean? And I'm like, well, maybe those, there's, those things in the woods are dryads. And this is how they reproduce or something, right? But another way of looking at it is the word plant is not... Uh, like vegetable, but rather like uh, a spy. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they are like corrupting. This is the way of corrupting that empire and turning. It's like if you read uh, Tai Pi by um, Herman Melville, it's about a couple of sailors who jump ship and, you know, desert their, their ship and run off into the woods to be with the natives and hopefully not get eaten by the natives but the natives say, no, don't worry. We don't eat the people. That's the people on the other side of the valley. And when they go over to the other side of the valley, I said, don't worry. We don't eat anybody. That's the guys on the other side of the valley. And it's just like ideal. You know, it's like a Garden of Eden. Yeah, you have to go inside when it rains. It's okay. Uh, it only takes 20 minutes to build a house because everything, all the growing materials right here. And we eat food and we have sex and that's all we do. <laughs> I was like, wow, well, yeah, you can see why so many sailors are deserting, right? <laughs> you pull ropes and get hit with a lash all day. That doesn't sound so fun. You get gangrene and, and not have any sex. You can see why a lot of guys want to jump ship. Um, yeah. That idea of a, of a plant, as in, uh, I'm, I'm here to subvert. Yeah, it's a kind of way of doing a, a, a story that isn't, I go into the woods and kill all the monsters, right? This is a reversal. And that, that kind of amazing, not telling you what it's doing storytelling, 
I really like that. And and so on this list of stories, like I, I'm not a huge, huge Paul Anderson fan. I um I didn't like the Broken High Sword. Crusade was fun. High Crusade is so fun, right? And him talking about it in this book, I'm like, I'm totally there. I want to read it again. But when I read The Broken Sword, I, I just didn't get it. Like I'm like, why does everybody think this is so great? But hearing somebody else talk about it and in here talk about um three hearts and three lions i'm like damn that sounds really good right yeah i want i want uh, only when i came away saying yeah i probably don't want to read that is the the moon pool it just sounded way too long i've tried to i've tried to read it a couple of times moon pool is pretty long um yeah the the Mir- dwellers in the mirage is really good yeah yeah that, that sounds i i think that's available as a public domain book i'll see if it's uh, yeah, available it's yeah, I th- like I think I've even processed it, but I wonder if it's a audiobook. I'll, I'll dig around and see. It should be. Um, what? Yeah, what's the one with the Vikings at the North Pole and right space kraken and human sacrifice and reincarnation and sounds great. I think it's a little sh- shorter than uh, the Moon Pool. It's well. not terribly long. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I did kind of like the way he ragged on Michael Moorcock. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I. I this guy's a jerk, and I don't. I don't want to read any more stories about this guy. A uh, dude, I, I I never understood why people liked um, Elric. I didn't get it. That's my. He's, never been, he's never been my character. I mean, he's he's got a he's sword that drinks. Gazing. Yeah. Just like I'm just so sad. It's like you're you're emperor of a magic kingdom. That rules the world. <laughs> yeah, I'm just so sad. Oh, I murdered a bunch of people. Oh, now I feel bad about it. <laughs> Can you, you consider not murdering a bunch of you? No, okay, never mind. We're gonna keep working. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's hilarious and true. Um, everybody should read more Stanley Weinbaum. He's on the list. I I felt that that chapter could have been a lot longer. Um, because the problem is is this list is some some very specific, right? Paul Anderson, Three Hearts, Three Lions, High Crusade, Broken Sword. I read two of those. Um, and I couldn't recommend one of them for sure. But when he says uh, Jack Williamson, that is a lot of books, right? That guy wrote a ton. And I think I've read The Humanoids. I think that's only one of his I've read. Um, Manly Wade Wellman. Man, that guy wrote thousands of stories, it seems like. I just keep, I found one yesterday that was like, oh my God, this looks really interesting. And yeah, I try and find a Manly Wade. Ranked out stories every month. Yeah, uh, try and find a Manly Wade Wellman book, uh, you know, on a book sh- bookstore shelf today. It's going to be pretty hard. You can go to, uh, you know, Abe and get some stuff. Maybe there's some stuff on Amazon, but it's not being, you know, put in front of you. But I, I do want to, and Stanley Weinbaum, I just, um, I really dig it. I read uh, his Martian Odyssey years and years and years ago, but that was it. I didn't continue on with it. And, you know, he's got such a short career and really fabulously science fictional, right? It's not, it's, that's why it's so funny. It's on this list is we look at the front of the book and there's a demon holding a sword and a lady (laughs) and a bunch of spellcasters and, and fighters, uh, trying to attack the demon. Well, Manly Wade, uh, sorry, uh, Weinbaum is, he's, he's spaceships. And he's alien planets and aliens. There's no question. He's science fiction, 
the guy invent had a story of virtual reality in the 1930s and it's an amazing story um just totally blows you away with its amazingness so yeah totally inspirational reading i'm down i'm down for pretty much any of the on this list except for that uh moon pool and uh yeah, maybe not. I I don't want to read every Andre Norton. That's that's the thing, right? He's he, he his um the way I think he we're getting this book is it's blog posts and he seems to be saying read this list as inspiration for your own campaign. I'm doing it. You can do it too. Yeah. Right? That's cool. I like this book quite a lot. I, I liked. Uh, it's kind of like, like the concept of this book. Yeah, it's a. It's a, a We're going to go back and look at stuff that people. Yeah. That the foundations that most people don't realize are there. That's right. By understanding them, you can understand more where you can take your game or your story. Even if your even if your preferred storytelling method is just writing something down rather than building interactive campaign. I I, I think you know he's he's right in that this is Gary Gagas putting this in here is saying. This is where I got some ideas. You should get uh, some ideas from stuff like this too. And he's just making a list of things that he read that you know were inspirational, inspirational and, not, and educational. It's not meant to be like I took this rule set from. That's this book. right. Because everyone looks at like, well, the magic system comes from the Dying Earth by Jack right, Vance, right? And the Barbarian more or less comes from Conan. Where do all their other rules like plug in? And it's, right, most of it's not a one-to-one chord. You know, it's not a. Uh, but he's right. Not just like, pulling things straight from it's like just themes or inspiration or like. But his thesis, stories his you know he, the suppositions he makes, you know, like that the monks were added because in the seventies, uh, kung fu was so popular. You know, all the karate things that were happening, and I'm like, of course, that makes total sense because when I was thinking about monks, like. That's a guy sitting in a room drawing. <laughs> it's like illuminated illuminated. Right? <laughs> Wow, amazing. I'm like, I don't want to be a monk. But if you said, hey, he's the kung fu guy, he, he's the, he, he goes into battle with his fists and he has lightning attacks and, right. Oh, damn. Shaw Brothers I can, yeah, I can walk up walls. <laughs> there we go. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I would, I want to see more books like this. I was thinking, this book is is such easy reading because it's it's blog posts. I don't think they've been edited at all, except to have the chapter title be chapter one instead of the blog post date. Yeah, I mean, I did put one of the footnotes in here. Just says, "Well, as we discussed in October." Right, like, right. This is this is the footnote from the blog post. Right, right. Back at what was posted in October. Uh, makes. Um, I was telling my mom while I was. Uh, Listening to this, I was saying, I think I can, I can put a book together of just my Star Trek literary references posts. Cause I'm watching all these Star Trek episodes. I'm like, Oh, this is a riff on this. Right. And it's like very clearly, uh, you know, we, we know this from the original Star Trek. There's an episode called Arena, uh, with a guy on this list, Frederick Brown. Um, that's the one where Kirk fights the Gorn, right? Um, you remember that one? Big green, big guy, green guy with microphones for eyes or whatever yeah. <laughs> um, at Vasquez Rocks. So they, they've remade that in basically every Star Trek. Uh, they did it in Next Generation. They had one that was uh, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. 
is kind of a combination of arena and um and uh the what's the ancient um, babylonian mythology oh gilgamesh gilgamesh yeah it's basically gilgamesh plus arena right um <laughs> a really good way to put that but uh, well but it, it's enkidu and um whatever the other guys they go on the water and then they go fight a monster and then they're friends right uh, in fact i think it's called out i think picard says tells the story of Gilgamesh in that, right? So it's it's like Picard referencing. Would. He's the kind of guy who would have that as <laughs> Of course, right? When, once we're all in post-scarcity communist future, we're all going to be able to uh, uh, spend well, all our time reading Gilgamesh. <laughs> That's right. Um, and while we're doing our hobbies of archaeology and such. Um, anyways, uh, there's so many references to, or, you know, like lifts from from science fiction literature in Star Trek episodes, they're also, they also lift from themselves, you know, like this is Voyager's take on Deep Space Nine's episode. And this is uh Deep Space Nine episode is a lift from the Star Trek Next Generation episode. They lift from themselves. They say that idea worked. Let's do our version of it. And then going to like, f- f- there's a really good example, a great, really good book uh, by Stuart J. Byrne, who I'd never heard of before I read the book. I can't remember the name of the book now. Anyways, he um, he wrote this sort of uh, planetary adventure. Um, there's two planets, and one's sort of a slave planet, and the other's uh, the Empire guys. And our protagonist gets on board uh, a golden spaceship that's ancient technology, and goes off to the other planet. And while he's hiding on the ship, he talks to the the computer and he argues with the computer uh, so that the computer doesn't kill him, but rather obeys his commands. And, and I'm like, Oh my God, he just kirked the computer. And uh, like, like literally Captain Kirk does this like five times in the first series. Right. He, Argues a, yes. so a weren't very smart at the time. It just AI argues them into like you are illogical. I mean, he does this in Viger, the the first motion motion picture Star Trek too, right? It's a remake of a of a episode with Nomad, the probe instead of Voyager, right? And um, and what's funny is I, I found out uh, Stuart J. Byrne says uh, uh, Roddenberry says of Stuart J. Byrne. I would stand in the rain to get the next Stuart J. Byrne, right? He's like a big fan of this this writer nobody's ever heard of. Um, and he took his influence shows up in the his show. influence shows up in the first Star Trek, and you know there's uh, other uh, really you know connections going backwards and forwards in the first Star Trek. There's I think it's called the Doomsday Device or something. Yeah, Doomsday Device, something like that. Um, and uh, that's like, oh, that's another guy from this list is Fred Saberhagen, right? With the Berserkers, where mm-hmm. you've got this. And so who's inspiring who? It doesn't really matter as long as you've got really something inspiring, right? Some idea at core that you want to explore and not like, hey, I read Tolkien. I can put a forest full of elves and some goblins in the forest and the elves and the goblins are fighting. <laughs> that's not the way to do it. Like a lot of the a lot of the point of this list is to remind you there are different things you can't yes. break out of that mold. It's not just remixing what came before, right? I mean, like 
being direct, like this goes in a different direction. You can take that even further or you're just not locked into one set of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a, and did, like the, speaking of outkirking the computer though. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned portal earlier. One mm-hmm. of my favorite bits in portal two is when they try and do the logic bomb greatly, mm. the, the evil, the evil, uh, supercomputer. Mm-hmm. And she starts shouting, Gladys starts shouting logic bombs at him. And he doesn't get that they're logic bombs because he's too stupid to understand <laughs> that it's a self-contradictory sentence. <laughs> like, this sentence is false. And he goes, huh, that's interesting. Moving on. <laughs> it doesn't click for him. He's too stupid. <laughs> um, yeah, one, one of the things you see in in that, I, di- I didn't play Portal 2 all the way through. I just I was like, oh, this is like this first game, but even harder. <laughs> I'll just play the first game again. So um, I, I, one of the things I really liked, the details, was like every once in a while you're crawling through a vent and you see like scrawled on the wall, the cake is a lie, right? That yes. kind of like granular um, – because uh, the, the game presents itself a certain way and then as you go, it becomes more of it of what it is. And it's, it's – it's, and what's the other thing that's really cool about that game is – you know, like we we all started with Doom and Wolfenstein and stuff, right? Spear of Destiny, etc. Um, but it's short. That first game, I don't know, it's six hours it's maximum, very short. right? And uh, it, I think it was just a tech demo that they kind of slapped uh, some story. Great idea, just, great idea. Just out of the box thinking, <laughs> literally out of the box thinking. <laughs> Pick up a box, you put it on this thing, you make a hole in the ground. I I mean, I spent a lot of time just thinking about how this how the gravity system works because you put a hole in the wall and the momentum means something falls out of the wall and comes out at an angle and then you can get another hole so that this thing is continuously falling <laughs> like how does this work it's amazing right just totally different kind of thinking that's what that's what really i feel like this this book is pointing to as you say you know he's saying things can be different you don't have to have you know a tavern <laughs> with an old man giving you a mission um <laughs> i mean tell a different kind of story right There's a lot of stories out there to tell right and and read a different kind of story too um i i there's not much mention of dunsany in here um, we do get his one book, um, uh, the King of Elfland's Daughter. Daughter. Um, but I was thinking a lot more about like the Sword of Wellerin and uh, the Book of Wonder. Those really short little stories. I, he does mention the Knolls. I think Knolls are spelt differently. Um, it's G N O L E in um, in uh, the uh, original story by Lord Dunsany, uh, but. It's G-N-O-L-L, I think, in the Monster Manual. Um, but the idea of, you know, a th- a two thieves going on a mission to s- rob the house of the gnolls, that is like my favorite kind of Dungeons & Dragons game because I-, I was never about going in the dungeons like, let's sneak in there and use the rope trick and climb the walls and sneak past, right? So a game like Thief, you remember Thief, that first-person mm-hmm. shooter game? I think there was like two or three sequels, right? Just a great very idea good. for it, it. It felt to me like these very strange single single player adventure modules, and all those. Uh, Mr. Jim Moon, I love Mr. Jim Moon's show. I was just talking about his um, 
reading of uh, Piper in the Woods, he also does this amazing um, thing where he, he gets one of these old game books, especially like from the very early 80s. They're kind of like Choose Your Own Adventure, but they have um, dice, and you, you have a character, and you have a little piece of paper to keep track of your inventory. Um, it's, it's basically a Dungeons & Dragons-style adventure, but it's a book, so you have to play honest with the book, right? Um, and you make choices. It's limited. But that's really, it's the gap between the two, right? A, a, a regular novel is completely linear, right? I mean, you could choose to read it in the wrong order. Probably not a good idea. It might be weird. <laughs> or, you know, start with the last chapter, work your way forward. Don't do that. It's <laughs> my thinking. But um, a Dungeons and Drag- Dragon style game is a narrative with a narrator. You know, the guy telling you where you are and what what's available in the horizon to look at and what things you can examine and, you know, maybe give you hints as to what how to proceed. But uh, these game books are allow you to it's told in second person, right? You walk into the room, you see this. Um, do you want to go east or west? Turn to page, yes. right? And so that is cool, but I don't want to do the rolling and the, the keep tracking. I want Mr. Jim Moon to do it for me. I want to see, <laughs> I want to see where he goes with it. And if it turns out badly, he can redo that section or, you know, read it a different way. And <laughs> I, I think that that's, it's, it's like, we are so lucky right now with the internet and, and the ability to scan all these books and find them and buy them. Just, we're so lucky. And to have a, a really good blog, blog turned into a really good book. I think we should have way more of this and a lot less of, uh, more Tolkien ripoffs. <laughs> I guess they're not. Maybe maybe they're not doing Tolkien ripoffs like they used to. But I just that was kind of a late '80s thing. They I guess so. About that a lot. Yeah. But I feel like that now it's all uh, Game of Thrones ripoffs. Yeah. Now it's really grim oh, dark. Dude. It's super realistic because everyone's horrible. Yeah. And I, I was just talking. Um, I just show noting our show on a um Robert A. Heinlein novel uh, Between Planets, and like that's a really good book. Really fun book. Completely forgot it before I reread it. Like, yeah, I think there's a dragon in this one. Don't really know. Um, and it's set on Venus in part. Mostly set in airports, right? <laughs> um, or spaceports. And um, and a lot of the episode we're talking about uh, this terrible podcast that did uh, uh, just saying you can just read Skulls. You don't need to read Heinlein. And yeah. I'm like, and then I looked it up. Uh, and Scal- you know, Scalzi's a good writer, but he's not Heinlein. <laughs> and so I looked it up and, uh, there are 2,000 pages of his, his re, his, not rewrite, his inspired by, uh, Starship Troopers book. That series is 2,000 pages long. So he's doing, you know, Heinlein in a certain sense, but Heinlein did that one book, Starship Troopers, and what, 300 pages? And then he did a yeah, different a book, book, right? He did a different book, and the next book is different. The The one we're going to do next is Farmer in the Sky, which is about a guy terraforming a moon of 
Jupiter, right? Ganymede. Like, that's not the same kind of story, right? They're different kind yeah, of stories. Know, these guys would write, every book was different. Every, there were short stories. Every month was a different story. You know? Yeah. They, and they couldn't afford to get Why do we have to have another series? Yeah. I don't understand. Why are we so in series? There, There's a kind of um, mistake. And I think we, part of it's that publishing drive. It so absolutely it is. As a sequel hook, then it's going to sell better. And you can sell more books, and publishers are looking for that. No and it brings your book back into much time advertising a one one off book. That's right. You wasted all that advertising. But it also brings your first book back into print, right? If you put out a new and look, listen, Larry Niven. If you put out just one more Larry Niven uh, Ringworld book, we can bring first Ringworld back into print. Otherwise, we can't do it. Okay. <laughs> so yet another Ringworld book. Here it comes, fifty years later. Just what we need. Another Ringworld book. I love Ringworld. I was done with it after the third one. I'm like, no, this is you know, this is uh, I mean, you know what? That'd be a peak with the first one. You know, but the first dude, one is a classic. It was. And, and Ringworld Engineers is interesting. And then Ringworld Throne is yes. like, okay, well, that was, oh, there's an okay bit there. And then, I don't know what we're on now, but I would love to see a book just like this, a bunch of reviews of things that are like <laughs> Lord of the Rings and other stuff that are on this list from 1979 onward. Because that's what, what, what I sort of lack now is I, I read The Martian, right? You were starting, when we were starting this podcast, uh, in the pre-show, you were saying like, this is one of the most modern things we've ever done, right? <laughs> yeah, it's only like four or five years old. It's because I don't have a good handle on what's good from the present. There's tons of stuff available from the present, but I, I assume most of it is shit. Because most of the stuff yes. from 1971 was shit, and I don't read most of the things from 1971, right? So why would 2021 be different? So what we need is somebody to go through from 1979 um, and make a list. You know, like I mentioned that book um, by Julian May, The Many Colored Land. That's a really interesting book, and it's very Dungeons & Dragons. Very Dungeons & Dragons. And it's hard to imagine her doing it in isolation, but these things did happen, right? People think about along parallel lines. It's it's just so much focused on geology that you see, okay, she's not actually like, and that's the other thing, right? I'll pick up a comic book. There was some new comic book and I picked up the first issue. It's a fantasy, you know, I, I'm willing to try stuff and I tried it and then I got to the Last page, and I'm like, I don't know about this. And then I turn the next page, and then they show the map, you know, the requisite map. And all the rivers go into the forest. Wait, what? Yeah, there's no mountains. <laughs> like, the mountains are not connected to the rivers. Like, okay, you, you just told me, by showing me this map, that you know nothing, and I don't need to read you. <laughs> That's what it told me. Because the the mountains are where the... Rain hits and roll down from into the rivers. Rivers don't go into the forest. The rivers go through the forest from the mountains. That's just geology. This is just geography. This is just how it works. So if you don't know that, how can you be telling me a story that I need to read? And that is really, I think, essential. It's like picking up these cues and saying, why is this work, right? 
Jack Vance's magic system is pick upable because he's treating it like a science, right? He's made up a bunch of arbitrary rules and he says, this is how it's going to work. And let's see what falls out from that. That's really cool. Yeah. It, it, you can't just make up whatever you want willy nilly because if you do, then it's bad writing. Um, I think you mentioned lost somewhere in here. <laughs> I think you did. Right. So one of the, the, one of the reasons I was really intrigued by lost is I thought it had a plan and I thought it was going somewhere. Right. I think that's what everybody thought, right? What's in the hatch. Yeah, I mean, right. And the answer is an answer to this question. <laughs> that's right. So I was, I was like, uh, Oh, that, uh, Sully Sullivan guy or whatever his name was. He's reading a book. That And that book has, you know, a title, and I can see that title, and that's going to help me understand what's going on. Turns out that that was just, you know, set dressing, good set dressing. That J.J. Abrams guy, he does not actually have any content. What he did was he picked up all the keys, right? It's like uh, M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> sort of, <laughs> like he sort of knows what people want. But he doesn't understand how, how it pays. It's going to pay off. So that there that, is no payoff. That there is no payoff. And I got tricked more than once by that. Watching that show, Heroes, I'm like, oh my god, this is going to be amazing, right? Everybody thought that so. went nowhere. Uh, went absolutely nowhere. And the reason and they is they gave him uh, Star Wars. Like here, make a Star Wars movie. Like, oh, and Star Trek. History. Don't don't forget they got them both. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and he did the same thing as Star Trek. And what happened with those? <laughs> so well, where's this going to go? I don't know. That's your problem. that's right i got my paycheck buddy so i think um we need to be as readers we need to be very chintzy with our attention we need to be much more focused on where's the quality guarantee on here right i want to i want to see evidence that your work is you know, going to pay off in the right way. Where are your bona fides? That's right. Because just because you got a bunch of awards and you got a big paycheck or you get lots of media attention does not mean your shit is, is good. It probably means your shit stinks. <laughs> I, I, we, we are sort of, we're still sort of on topic. I think we're, we're drifting. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe we're done. I don't know. What do you think? I think we're probably done. All right. All right. Good conversation. though. Yeah. And I recommend this book. I do too. Uh, I I think the audiobook narrator should have done his homework, or they should have picked somebody who already knew all these vocab words. Um, I was telling a friend of mine in Australia, uh, that's not how you pronounce Suleiman. <laughs> and so he's he's changing it. Uh, I think he said Solomon. You know the um, uh, this is for that uh, uh, this is Connor for. Mm-hmm. What's Shadow of the Vulture, the first Red Sonya story? Oh, yes. Right? He's doing it. He's recording it now. And he said, is this too fast? And I said, sounds good. But Suleiman is pronounced Suleiman. Not pretty sure it's not pronounced Suleiman. Not Solomon. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's the way I heard it. Suleiman the Man- Magnificent, right? I'm looking at it. I said uh, Suleiman. So, I don't know. As long as as long as we look it up, that that's is the important part. Get we try and get everything as yeah. We we just you know make. I, I was telling him also. Here's a here's another word I learned the other day. Egret, e g r e t. You know what that is? A bird. Yeah. Um. I, and he said, um, 
I thought that was a, a baby eagle, and I'm like, no, I think that's eaglet. But an egret is a is a it's a kind of bird, but it's basically it's just a white heron. So if you've seen a heron, you've seen a, an egret, but egrets are white. It's like, oh yeah, it's like it's good to learn stuff. <laughs> hey, little thing we added to our knowledge base. It just helps. Like when we're, we're conjuring up these things with our mouths using words. It's good to know what they what they mean and how they're pronounced. It helps us somehow. It's my thesis. Suleiman. Having more, more background you can reach into and is always good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, when I, when I, I think the best Dungeons & Dragons um, campaign I ever DM'd, I ripped it off of a Conan, Savage Sword of Conan um, plot. It was basically Conan's in the north, and there's like these Eskimos or whatever the equivalent of Eskimos are. Maybe they're the uh, Finnish Eskimos. They're not called Finnish Eskimos. Finnish Inuit. What are they? The Sumi. Sumi. Yeah, something like that. Anyways, it's the you know Hyborian equivalent of them, and they're like dragging a god across the uh, like a stone god across the the arctic wastes and they're being attacked by like some group that wants their god and there's like a there's like a tavern in the middle of the forest that it's it was like oh this is a really cool story setting and there's like snow so you can see for a long way but also your horses are doing this so and i'm like oh this is awesome and they the kids liked it too so it just rip rip off say again my favorite campaign that I ever DM'd. Mm-hmm. I based it on a little bit on Lovecraft. There was a cult. There was a buried dead god they were trying to resurrect. Awesome. Um, and there was these artifacts you needed to do the ceremony. And I kept dropping these dark, horrible artifacts in the party's way. It's like, you know, these guys are looking for them and you have found it. And they're like, well, who can we sell it to? Like, Who's the <laughs> Probably this cult. They're the only ones who want it. And they sold every artifact right to the cult. And then only when they got to the last one, they Wait a minute. What are they doing? <laughs> this book's about resurrecting a dead guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> wow. That's fun stuff. Yeah. Um, you get, you should try Darkest Dungeon. Um, it's really hard. It's really hard. Like it, it's, I, I find the difficulty level is too high for me. So I don't play very much because I, I, I just, it's a time sink, you know, if you want to do it. But it's f- a really fun game in concept because what it is is it's a dungeon crawl it's a uh, turn-based and it has um uh it's sort of quasi medieval setting i guess um bunch of different player types so classes i guess there's like a hound master and there's a plague doctor and a bunch of different classes and it uses the um call of cthulhu style sanity system so when you're confronted by, you know, trauma in the party, like one of the players is killed, all the other players will have uh, some sort of dice roll effect um, that'll cause them to either gain a mania or gain a like a, a depressive problem. Um, and you cure them uh, if they survive the adventure by going to, uh, you know, prayer or to the tavern or to the wenching or whatever. Um and, you know, there's sort of the acquisition of goods that you get through the dungeon. 
but it's all narrated by my friend Wayne June, uh, who is famous for narrating Lovecraft stories. Um, so he's got this very deep voice. And then his character is called the Ancestor, and he is the character who inspires you, the player, to come back to this uh, castle that your ancestral state is um, and plumb the depths, get rid of the evil. And if you go deep enough into the game, and you finish the the game, you find out that the ancestor is evil. <laughs> you get the end game. It's like, oh, he is like he is like one of those uh, Lovecraftian monster characters, like uh, from the Rats in the Walls. But he is like, I'm becoming a god. <laughs> I'm becoming one of these guys, and you have helped me acquire all of these these trophies to get. Th- so it's basically kind of like what your your campaign was like. Um. And uh, people do, resurrecting yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's like a Darkest Dungeon Two is coming. And what one of the cool things about computer games, as opposed to movies, is they tend to get better. Do you notice that? Like the the first game is like that's good, uh, but like Fallout Three is a better game than Fallout Two. I really like Fallout Two. I like Fallout One, but Fallout Three is better. Um, yeah. It's not always the case. Sometimes games get you know Fallout. New Vegas was not an improvement exactly, and the latest Fallout was really bad. I think, but th- they tend to get better because they're they're refining themselves and and becoming more what they are in a certain sense. So, yeah, I, I recommend I recommend that it's kind of it's a it's a hybrid experience between Call of Cthulhu and Dungeons and Dragons, and it's something you can play at home. A lot of streamers. Uh, as a percentage, probably not many, but there's a lot of streamers who, who play it, and it's it's a I have to look it up. yeah, it's a it's a fun indie game made out of Vancouver here. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. So, yeah, Farmer in the Skies next weekend if you're interested. I'm not sure I'm available next weekend. All right. Let me look at the schedule here. Let's see. Oh, I wanted to ask you, um, what's the, uh, what's the deal with, uh, you got a New York Times retweet that caused you to have a lot of traffic? <laughs> what was, I, the, I tried to look for it. I didn't see it. Oh, um, I could find it. Hang on. It was, uh, wasn't a lot of content. What was weird is it's like the, the Christian <laughs> mother opinion columnist, the New York Times. Okay. Weird. And she, it was um oh crap, what was it? Uh, let me go back here. Yeah, but I got like three or four hundred new followers on Twitter. Yeah. In a day. Um you know, I can punch up at you now. Analytics. <laughs> you have a yeah, ton of so followers. If you go to I'll search for it. it is. And then mm-hmm. Quote tweets. 
Oh no, it's gone. It was a uh, Victor Parizo's in the line of fire, which is the picture of a woman kind of lounging behind a chair while she's being shot at, and two guys shooting her, and there's a guy next to her shooting back. Hmm. I think and I saw that. It's it like I just hate when this happens to me. Hmm. But she has you know two hundred and some thousand followers. Wow. And <laughs> it blew up there for a day or two. Wow. You have very um, shareable content. I do. And I try to you stay on one topic. Mm-hmm. It keeps, like, no one comes to me and says, well, I followed you for years, but then now you've, you've said this, and I, can, I have to unfollow <laughs> you. I can, never, I can never speak to you again. <laughs> you know exactly what you're going to get when you follow me. Yeah. That's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the opposite. Look at this one. I love this tweet thread. It's so funny. <laughs> Years ago, I I told you I had Wing Jun on, and we were doing this Silverberg book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about it's a good book. It's called The Book of Skulls. It's about uh, some college kids who go to like they find some research paper footnote, and they go off to the New Mexico desert. I think it is Arizona desert to uh, find out about this immortality cult. Okay. It's a road trip. and So they go out there, and uh, they find the cult, and they join it. It turns out that um, in order to become a member, you have to kill one of your one of your group. <laughs> and so um, two, of them, <laughs> two of them kill, kill the other. I think... One of them survives and becomes one of the cult members, and it's a really horrible cult because basically all you do is you're a monk and you, you, uh, I don't know, polish turds all day. It's really boring, right? <laughs> but you get to live forever. And the other guy is like, I don't want to live forever if this is what it fucking means. And they're like, Well, we have to kill you now. <laughs> uh, anyways, you didn't want to live forever. It's a good book, um, but uh, the um, something that comes up in every magazine is is. Um, the Rosicurians, or Rosicrucians, you know. Yeah, have wings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So every time I see one of these, I like I I pull it out of the magazine, I put it on my desktop, and then I wait a couple weeks and I send it to. I say <laughs> I just quote the quote tweet some of it. <laughs> I was like, our blood and nervous systems, comma at Wayne June, <laughs> because he mentioned it once, and so I've been like doing this consistent harassment for probably five years. <laughs> Just random, <laughs> random shit. <laughs> this synatogenis is kind of similar. Have we lost the secret of health? <laughs> so I just quote, quote, treat some of it. And then, um, some weirdo in France, I guess, has this big long thing. And then, <laughs> and then <laughs> well, um, he ends it. And then Wayne says, <laughs> you know, like, He's drinking. He's like, whatever, drinking his cup. And I say, <laughs> I quote tweet, I see you drinking it, Wayne. And I up a picture of Putin drinking some tea or whatever. <laughs> it's like just completely random. Obviously hilarious. I, that makes me so happy. You cannot, um, <laughs> you cannot, um, <laughs> do that in your account. You're gonna have to have another account if you want to do shit like that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and here's here's another one just from this morning that made me really happy. Um, this guy, um, 
he's he reads and likes the new Conan comics, which I think suck. And I've been writing about mm-hmm. them, and he follows me. I'm pretty sure this is him responding to me <laughs> without using my name. <laughs> he says, Conan doesn't have an Excalibur or other legacy magical weapon. He tends to use whatever is handy, but he does occasionally use a special weapon with magical properties. In Howard's very first Conan story, the Phoenix on the Sword, Ep- Epimetrius the Sage marks Conan's sword with a magical symbol that allows Conan to slay otherworldly beasts summoned by dark sorcery. They cannot be harmed by conventional weapons. And I'm like, shit, I didn't know that. I, I don't think I've read Phoenix on the Sword. He says, so when purists, quote-unquote, complain about Conan swinging a magical sword for a few issues in comics, I don't see an issue unless it becomes a permanent fixture. Um, and then <laughs> Jesse says, well, I actually follow that guy, and he doesn't, well, he didn't like the Marvel comics very much either. He was he was quite down on them for a while. Oh, well, he, they seem to like, Jim, people seem to like Jim Zub, but I, I got to tell you, he ain't great. I'm be honest, I read one or two of the, and I'm, I have a complete set of the Dark Horse comics. The yeah, Dark Horse me, me too. Except I I, love those. I'm missing a couple. A couple of them. We're going to do People of the Black Circle, but I'm missing a couple of the Dark Horse adaptations. I have all of them if you want. I I can get the digital. I, I, yeah, I just need the I need to have the physical copy because I just don't read digital. Mm, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'll do it if I have to, but so yeah, you're missing out on the on the um making fun of people. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I can do it in character. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. If you can do it in character. So So some guy uh, a couple days ago, I guess a couple weeks ago now, mm-hmm. uh he's doing some kind of collectible card series uh-huh. or something. I didn't look into it too much. He's like, Hey, we're doing this thing, we're printing these cards. Um if you wanted to send me like six of your favorites and then like one on each of these, like, you know, a Western, a sci-fi, a fantasy, a mystery, you know, whatever. Send me six, one of each genre, mm-hmm. and like four bonus cards. We put a thing together and I'll give you credit. And I'll, you know what? Sure. I've, I've got these scans here. Like, here's, here's 10 covers. They're all public domain now. Uh-huh. Go nuts. It's like, awesome. Um, how do I credit you? Like pulp covers is fine. It's like, yeah, but what's your name? It's like, I'm not giving you that. <laughs> I don't need this. <laughs> what, you're not in it for the celebrity status? <laughs> no. That's the only reason I, I I put my full name on the post is because um, I think people need to be accountable. When I say, you know, when I do a review of something, like, fuck you, here's my name. <laughs> it's not anonymous, right? When I used to write IMDb reviews, it was the same thing. It was not anonymous. Just because I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. But if, <laughs> yeah, if you're not doing any um, social commentary that is um, other than, look at this, <laughs> then you don't I, really mean it. If an employer searches my name, I don't want this to be the first thing mm-hmm. that pops up. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so you're worried about being canceled. I get it. I, I am. Yeah. I like to keep this a little separate. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> My name is Pulp Covers. That's it. <laughs> Covers, comma, Pulp. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I got to run. Have a great one. Um, uh, Let me uh, send you that schedule first. Hold, hold on one sec. Okay. Uh, we're going to do Gulliver of Mars. Huh? Oh, yeah, you're already Ooh. on that. Yeah. yeah. You're scheduled for that one here. There's the yeah. uh, list. Um, And then... We will get that um, 
probably uh, Shadow of the Vulture in somewhere in January, February, March, April, May. I am in for Shadow of the Vulture. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Player Games by Ian Banks. That's an excellent book. Mm, we, uh, that must be done already. That's from last year. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, starts on um, line 184. There we go. New stuff. New Gulliver of Mars. Yeah, Player of Games was pretty good. It's the only culture book I read. So the culture books, are, I started at the end um, uh-huh. because something was in the library. I was in, I was in the library and there was a book and I was like, this looks interesting. I'll read it. And I read it. I was like, that was cool and weird. And not, I feel like it was clearly like a, like, you know, it's one of the culture books. Like, oh, well, maybe mm-hmm. if I read the earlier ones, it'll make more sense. And it, it didn't. They all stand alone, right? <laughs> they, they all stand alone. I like that idea. The first couple are real. Like, the first one is dark. Is it? Uh, Consider Flavius is just. Yeah, I'm not. Everybody dies. It is not. It is not a happy ending. It's um. It seems like it's it's a cool idea. Um, that player of games was it was it was uh, it, it could be on a list of new appendix N, you know, because it has that. You go to visit this planet, and this is how these people are, and our protagonist has a robot companion, right? I think my favorite um, of his books is Accession. Okay. Right? So um, it's about what's called an outside context problem. Okay. And he describes that in the books. Like, you you know, you're, you're running your little empire. You've got, you know, the other tribes kind of subjugated. You're... You know, you're sacrificing people on temple to keep the gods in order. Mm. Um, you've got your crops figured out. You've got your canals figured out. Um, you've got your alliances figured out. You know, you've got this. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly a bunch of guys show up in these gigantic ships with guns out of right. nowhere. And you're like, you're just, they're just from, you have no context for this problem. It is an outside right. context problem. It just comes out of nowhere. And so the culture is this super advanced sci-fi race. And they're super powerful. You know, they can blow up suns. Mm-hmm. They're just, there's nothing that can really directly challenge them. Mm-hmm. And then one day this thing shows up and it is just as far beyond the culture as they are above That's cool. normal, normal human. And it doesn't really do anything. It's just a giant, it's a black body object. It just sits there and does nothing. And it does, it's conspicuously does nothing. Like gravity doesn't affect it. Wow. And there's no radiation from it at all. It's just this weird hole in space. Cool. And everyone freaks out because no one knows what it is or how to respond <laughs> to it. And the whole book is about everyone freaking out about this thing and not knowing what it is. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, he he seems like a... Or I guess he seemed like a smart, smart guy. Like he, he had something to say and he was thinking about it. Um, it made me think of, um, you know, the when uh, Cook shows up on Hawaii <laughs> and they eventually eat him. <laughs> Um, they're busy doing their shit, right? They're 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 having their internal stuff, and then some guy shows up, and he's like, "Hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> I'm from the British Empire," and they're like, "We're busy right now. Get the fuck out of here!" And then, oh, you don't want to get it? Okay, fine. We eat him. <laughs> it's like, um, it's like we imagine this. I you know the idea of of this island. You show up, and the natives are you know. They're having breakfast. <laughs> they're just, they're, they're having a casual Friday. You know, it's like just a normal day. But if you come, if you show up into some country, it's like, um, I'd like to go to Yemen right now. I wonder what's going on in Yemen. You just parachute into Yemen. <laughs> like, no, you don't want to be there right now. They're busy. <laughs> um, they got their own things going on right now. Um, and that's, uh, that's like also, what's his name? Um, 
uh, Cortez. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, hey guys, Cortez is a fascinating story, right? Not a great guy. No. Holy crap! Is that a cool story? It is super um, cool. Like to me, he 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 ranks up there with Alexander the Great as just this. Oh, hundred percent. He marched. He marched into something just totally weird, and with very few resources and a lot of cleverness and a lot of ruthlessness, just and, totally and a lot of luck too, and a lot of luck. But and um, also he fucks up, right? Like it's like, hey, let's keep at least keep after this uh, city of gold that's just over the hill. It's like, yeah, there's a city of gold. Went there. Like, some of the guys, like Pizarro, went into South America. Trying yeah, stuff. Cortez just like, yep, I, I took over Mexico. This is mine now. Yep. I'll call y'all. I'm, <laughs> I'm burning my ships, guys. <laughs> well, we're committed now. It's a great story. It is. Um, I first uh, heard deep, deeply about it on a really old podcast called History According to Bob. I wonder if it's still running. Um, and he did a whole long series on it. His name is Bob. That's why. Um, and uh, it's like, wow, that's the. It's like, yeah, he he shows up in this what's now Mexico City and. It's like this weird. It's very D and D, right? There's like a city built on stilts, and and uh, they're busy doing their stuff. He's got this army behind him, and he says, "Like, hey, I'm coming in." And they come in, and uh, okay, now I've seized you, and I want you to fill this room with gold. And they do. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, "Okay, uh, uh, we're taking that gold, and please fill this room with gold." (laughs) And they're like, "Well, we're running out." Because it's not, I mean, it's important to us, but it's not that important. We don't have endless supplies. It's like, wow, amazing, horrible guy. But um, totally, uh, it's uh, there's a murder hobo for, <laughs> for sure. Wow. All right, I'll let you go. Have a great Sunday. All right, you too. Yeah. Bye-bye.